Well, happy Easter, everyone. I'm so glad you're with us today. If you haven't been with us during this last month, we've been in a series where we've been, uh, that we've entitled Brought to Life, not only because we're talking about the resurrection, which we're talking about today, that Jesus came back from the dead, but because we wanted the characters of the Easter story to be brought to life. By giving you some background, hopefully you and I can start understanding these are real people. If we, understood, if we understand the way they think and what they felt, well, then maybe the Easter story can apply to you and me. I mean, if you've ever watched Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List, then you know that when you care about a character in the movie, all of a sudden now World War II or the Holocaust, they take on a whole new meaning. You're moved because you go, I, I understand this now. Well, that's what we hope to do today as we talk about the eyewitnesses, the people who were there on Easter Sunday morning, who went to the tomb, who met Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. What were they thinking? And how does this apply to you and me? So for us to get our heads in the right place, I got to give you some background information first. And hopefully you received an outline on your way in today. If you follow along with me there, you'll see that there were two groups of people that I want to introduce you to. First of all, there were people who hated Jesus. These were the religious leaders of the day. That might be surprising to you because Jesus was the son of God and he came into the world and you'd think that the religious people would welcome him the most. But the people who were in charge of the priestly duties of the temple and the Old Testament scholars at the time, they had achieved a lot of political power and a great deal of wealth and status. And when Jesus came, he exposed that. And so they didn't believe in him. The Jewish high council is what I'm talking about here, the Sanhedrin. They didn't believe in him. In fact, they believed a Messiah would come who would be a mighty political ruler and who would establish Israel as a predominant political power, drive out the Romans who were occupying Israel at the time and set up a political kingdom. And when Jesus came proclaiming to be the Messiah, he was nothing like that. And so he said, look, all you care about is appearing righteous, but you're hypocrites and frauds and you're secretly making deals. And then Jesus rode a donkey down into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday a week ago and the crowds went wild. Passover crowds were there, a million people at least in Jerusalem. Everybody going nuts throwing palm branches in front of Jesus and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the priests and the leaders, they all said, we got to do something about this guy because everybody's following after him. It's either him or us. And they were looking for a way to kill him secretly because it would be kind of bad on their image if the priests were plotting murder. That would look bad. So here's what they did. They made a secret deal. They bribed Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, to hand Jesus over to them secretly to avoid a public scandal. And that's why they arrested him on the Garden of Gethsemane. It was an olive grove in the middle of the night. No crowds. They tried him in the middle of the night. It's illegal to do so, but they did so. No crowds. Then they manipulated the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to have him crucified. And this way, he would be hung on a cross for everyone to see. He'd be condemned as a criminal and 
according to the Old Testament, anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. This would satisfy everything. If they could get Pilate to do that, then people would quit talking about Jesus being the Messiah. They could point, no, he's a criminal. The Romans killed him. And he's cursed by God. He was hung on a tree. He can't be God's Messiah. Follow us, not him. This is what they were up to. And then one more thing they took care of. Oh, and by the way, if you weren't with us over the last couple of weeks, crucifixion was the most horrible way you could possibly ever die. The Romans didn't invent it, but they did perfect it. They loved to use brute force to keep people under control. And they couldn't keep soldiers everywhere, so whenever they had a chance to make an example out of somebody, they did it. And crucifixion did that powerfully. You would beat someone within an inch of their life, you'd strip them naked, hang them on a cross, they'd be screaming in agony, and they would die slowly in shame, disgrace, and excruciating pain. And there'd be a sign up on top of the cross that would tell you what the crime was. So usually it was reserved for like murder or insurrection, trying to stir up a revolt against the Roman government. And as people saw somebody hanging there screaming, they said, if you commit murder, if you commit insurrection against the government, this will happen to you. That was the message they wanted to get across. And yet they crucified Jesus that way. It was all the better for the people who hated Jesus. They loved it that he was being exposed and shamed and they were cursing him themselves. Well, he died on the cross was placed in a tomb, and there was one more detail they had to take care of, and that was this. Jesus had said repeatedly, and they'd heard him say this, that if he were to die, he would rise again on the third day. And they didn't believe he would. They said, you know, it'd be just like one of his disciples to come steal the body and then claim that Jesus was secretly ruling from somewhere, from some unknown location. We can't let that happen we got to take care of that. And so listen to this verse. This is from Matthew chapter 27. The next day, he was killed on Good Friday. So the next day on the Sabbath, on Saturday, the leading priests and the Pharisees, this is this Sanhedrin I'm telling you about. They went to see Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who had him crucified. And they told him, sir, we remember what that deceiver, speaking of Jesus, what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I'll rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent the disciples from coming, stealing the body, and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than the first. Remember, they're trying to control their image. This is all about them. They don't believe Jesus is the son of God at all. They just want to control their image. Pilate replied, well, take guards and secure it as best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted a guard to protect it. The tomb was close by where Jesus had been crucified. He'd been placed on the tomb Friday evening. He died Friday afternoon. A man named Joseph of Arimathea had owned a tomb nearby. He'd had it carved out. It was expensive to do this, but it's basically a cave that was carved into a limestone cliff and had a couple of shelves inside of it where you could place a body on. And then there's a small opening. You'd roll a large stone in front of it and seal it once you'd place the body inside. It was a, a crypt. Well, Jesus had been placed in there on Friday evening. One way in, one way out. So if you wanted to make sure nobody tampered with the body, you just 
put a seal, a rope across the entrance over the stone and sealed it with a wax seal on either side and that would prove that nobody opened it and then you post a guard in front of it. So that's what they did. They didn't care about Jesus. They cared about themselves. So if you want to understand the thinking of the people as we go into Easter Sunday morning, you have to understand that they lived at a time, and this is going to be a stretch for us, when their national leaders did shady and, and criminal things and then pretended to be righteous. I know that you're going to have to reach for this, but they lived in a culture where national leaders did shady, underhanded things and pretended they did nothing wrong. I mean, sometimes people tell me, they say, well, how can you teach the Bible? It's not relevant today. What are you, crazy? These people lived in times just like we do. So first of all, you have to understand there were national leaders who wanted nothing to do with Jesus because he wasn't playing the political game. Secondly, you need to understand that Jesus' followers believed he really was the son of God, but they didn't understand what was going on. It's not they didn't believe, they didn't understand. How could a loving God in heaven allow his son to be crucified in such a horribly cruel and awful way? This can't be right. This can't be right. Even though Jesus had told them many times this was going to happen, I mean, listen to what Jesus himself said in Luke 18. Luke records this for us. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. And Jesus had gone through the predictions of the prophets in the Old Testament. They had all prophesied that God would send a Messiah who would die for his people and who would rise again. And Jesus told them point blank, this is a week and a half ago. This is like a week and a half ago. He calls the disciples aside and said, listen, here's what's about to happen. I'm going up to Jerusalem. I mean, listen to this again. This is amazing. Point blank. We're going up to Jerusalem. All the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He'll be handed over to the Romans. He'll be mocked, treated shamefully, spit upon. They'll flog him with a whip, kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples didn't get it. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words was hidden from them. And they failed to grasp what he was talking about. You go, how thick could they be? I mean, how could you miss that? Here's how they could miss it. There's a good God in heaven. This is God's man. Bad things have happened to this man, so the good God in heaven can't have allowed this. This can't be true. Can you imagine God's people thinking like that? We do it all the time. We have a business reversal. A friendship goes sour. Someone we love passes away. If there's a God in heaven, he wouldn't have let that happen. Stop going to church, stop reading our Bible, stop praying, give up on God, can't be. Haven't been in church in eight years since my marriage fell apart. Haven't, been, haven't read the Bible in six years since my business went under. If there's a God in heaven, he wouldn't let that happen. Because if bad things happen, it means there is no God in heaven. Even though we know the Bible tells us this is a fallen world and the Bible tells us that God loves us and works in ways we can't understand. So now that you know 
that they lived in a time very much like our time and they thought very much like we do. Now, hopefully we can look at the Easter story with fresh eyes. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we've gotten a little history here. These were people just like us. And Father, we pray that today you will speak once more the good news of Easter. And to remind us, Lord, of what happened there. I pray that you will speak, Lord, move me out of the way. Show us what the resurrection means. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Point B, early Easter Sunday morning, an angel opened up Jesus' tomb to reveal that he had risen from the dead. That's what was happening. It was a revelation. Never think that the angel came and moved the stone so Jesus could get out. The angel came and moved the stone so people could get in. Jesus was long gone. I mean, he was long gone. So here's what's happening. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone that was sealing the crypt, and he sat on it. His face shone like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. I'll bet so. Well, then the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. He said, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come and see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that, he was risen, that he's risen from the dead. And the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. You're not going to believe this. We went to the tomb and an angel told us that Jesus was risen. We looked in and his grave clothes are there, but he's not there. What about the guards? They were passed out. They passed out in terror from the angel. I'm telling you guys, he's risen from the dead. And when the women told the disciples, they had to go see it for themselves. And if you flip the page over in your outline, you'll see this. On Easter Sunday morning, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection finally started to make sense to them. Remember, these were people, it's like, if all these bad things happened, then everything we believed about God must be wrong because a good God could never allow this bad thing to happen, even though Jesus had told them, I have to allow this to happen in order to forgive all your sins. All the sins of the world have to be poured out on me. The wrath of God has to be poured out on me. I get the wrath, you get my blessing. I die, you live. Those are the terms. But trust in me, believe in me, I'm going to rise from the dead. He had raised other people from the dead and they'd seen that, but they didn't believe. They really didn't believe. They didn't understand how it could even be possible. This had never happened before. And so they went to check it out. Peter and the other disciple, by the way, this is the account of John. He refers to himself in the third person, kind of a, you know, a writing technique. So Peter and John, the other disciples, started out to the tomb. 
They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, I can't wait to get to heaven and talk to John about this one day ago. So you're describing the resurrection of Jesus, but you got to let everybody know that you're faster than Peter. Yes, that was important to me. (laughs) Yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but I want you to know that I'm faster than Peter. This is great. He stooped and he looked in and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He saw and believed. For until then, listen to this, for until then they hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. It was dawning on them. This is the way it happens. And maybe this Easter, it's dawning on you. People ask me sometimes, don't you get tired of saying the same story over every year? Oh no, oh no. It might be the first time or the 10th time or the 33rd time that somebody hears it. All of a sudden it's like, Jesus died for me. I mean, if the tomb's empty, then he really is the son of God because only the son of God could do that. If the tomb's empty, then he really is stronger than death. If the tomb's empty, he said he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, then he must really have done it and God must have accepted the sacrifice. And if he really has the power to rise from the dead, well, then why wouldn't he have the power to help me with every other problem in my life? And once you start thinking like that, now you're starting to think like Peter and John did when they walked in, they looked around and there's the grave wrappings, his clothes were still there. He just had gone through them. He didn't need them anymore. He was going to be clothed in heavenly garments. And this is one of those things you just step back if you're in there going, it's all true. I didn't understand. I mean, I grew up going to church, but I tell people all the time I became a Christian when I went to college because when I went to college, it was the first time in my life when I made a profession of my own faith. I wasn't going to church because mom made me and she made me go a lot. I wasn't going to church because mom made me, dad made me. This wasn't my parents' faith, my grandmother's faith. This was my faith. I surrendered my life to Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. He died for me. I'm convinced he rose again. He paid the penalty for my sins. I have his righteousness. He has my sins. He died. Now I will live forever in his name. But that wasn't until I went off to college. I'd heard this year after year. And maybe it's you this year. true. It's important we make a life application here. We don't need to understand everything God's doing in order to trust him. Understand this. God is awfully big and he's awfully smart and he can't explain everything he's doing to you and me. And sometimes the most painful things in our lives, we go, God, this can't be right. He's going, hold on. There's something coming you can't even imagine yet. Here's what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not, do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do. Then he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. To fear the Lord means I trust God's judgment better than my own. If he tells me to do something, that's what I'm going to do because he knows what I need better than I know what I need. 
And he wants what's best for me more than I want what's best for me. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 8. He said, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And so some of us who walked with the Lord for a long time can tell you that some of the things that we went through early in our lives were terrible. We thought, God, you can never use this for good. But then it turns out 10 years later, you go, oh my goodness, the Lord taught me so much through that, shaped my character when I lost this job or I went through this disappointment, I thought I would never recover, but God had something much better in store for me, and I'm so glad that happened. Some of us have learned this. And maybe this is the year when you go, God just wants me to trust him. Oh, I want you to hear that this Easter Sunday. The empty tomb means that the worst thing that ever happened when all the wrath of the devil himself, all the anger and hatred that people could muster was poured out on Jesus. And he was crucified, mocked, spit upon, hung naked, and the Romans loved to make people hang in shame and pain. When all that was poured on Jesus, those, those followers went, this can't be right. And then when they went to the tomb, they went, God took the most horrible thing that's happened to anyone ever, and he used it to save the whole world from sin. The most horrible thing became the most blessed thing. And that's why that symbol of shame becomes now something that we wear around our necks and why we prominently display in the lobby, there's a cross out there with a purple sash signifying Victory. So for the disciples, this was the moment of understanding. For the people who hated Jesus, remember the Sanhedrin? It had the opposite effect. This is the next point you outlined. It's important to note the Sanhedrin bribed the men who had guarded Jesus' tomb and circulated a fake news story about the disciples being grave robbers. I mean, listen to what happened. This is Matthew 28. As the women were on their way telling the disciples the good news that Jesus had risen, an angel had appeared to them, some of the guards who also saw the angel went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. Same story, different result. They went to the leading priests and said, hey, there was an angel from heaven that came down, rolled the stone away and sat on it, and we all passed out just from terror of this being. The tomb was empty, though. When he took away the stone, there was no body in there. This guy really rose from the dead. And instead of the priests and the leaders going, wow, we were wrong about Jesus like the disciples had been, they went, we got to cover this up. I mean, if that's true, then people will really follow him. Remember, this was never about Jesus. This was about them. So an emergency meeting was called. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole the body. The governor hears about it. We'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. 
So the guards accepted the bribe, and they said what they were told to say, and their story is spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Propaganda, spin. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? Of course we can. And by the way, that's the lamest story you could ever imagine. I mean, think about it. It would never hold up in a court of law. Well, who stole the body? The disciples did. Well, when did they steal it? Well, we were asleep. Well, if you were asleep, how do you know they stole it? Mm. Uh, well, we woke up. So these untrained fishermen and tax collectors and other things carrying a corpse overpowered all of you trained soldiers with swords and spears and shields. Or they outran you all. You guys are the worst guards ever. I mean, that would never work. And why were all the linen wrappings in the tomb? Why would they take time to unwrap the body before they carried it off and then put the linen back the way what? How long were you guys asleep anyway? I mean, none of this makes any sense. Worst story ever. There's another life application here. Jesus hates religious pretense. Don't miss this. This is what these guys were all about. They never cared about God. They just cared about what everybody else thought about them. God wants us to come to him openly and honestly, acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for him. That's all he wants. The good news about the crucifixion and resurrection is he knows we're sinners. He died on the cross to save us from our sin. So why would we need to pretend we're better than we are? He already knows we're messed up. Jesus told a story once in front of these people. These were people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You'll hear that these were the religious leaders. Here's what he said. Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and they scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader. The other was a despised tax collector, a notorious sinner. Well, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. Oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. I mean, you just hear it just reeks. But the tax collector, oh, he stood at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest. And sorrow said, oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. A while back, a guy came in and said, I got to talk to you. I've really made, I've really messed it up. My marriage, I've said and done some things, and he went through what he'd done, and oh my goodness, he said some horrible things to his wife, acted foolishly and stupidly. Oof. I said, well, the first thing is, we gotta pray, and you gotta confess this to the Lord. And he goes, well, I don't know what to pray. And I go, well, just repeat after me. Lord, I'm an idiot, and I'm a fool, and I've done some terribly shameful things. And he goes, hold up. You want me to pray that? And I go, I'm just getting started. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the meat of it. I mean, we really had a conversation. He goes, I can pray that way? I go, well, of course you can. I mean, the tax collector was a notorious sinner. He said, Lord, you know what I've done. Jesus said, 
God loves it when we don't dress things up. He knows who we are. The great news is Jesus paid the debt in full. If we're guilty of sin, bring him the sin and say, God, forgive me. And he takes it away. Oh, this is good news. That's why it matters the tomb was empty. He really is who he says he is. He's the son of God. He forgives sin. So don't put lipstick on it. Just confess it. Don't whitewash it. And maybe today the penny's going to drop now for you. And you go, oh, that's me. I don't have to pretend. You don't. You just need to come to Jesus and he'll make you clean. He's the only one who can. Point C. That was early in the morning. Later on, that first Easter Sunday, Jesus spoke to two other followers. They were traveling from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles away. People made pilgrimages home for the holidays over Passover. That's what these two guys had done. And so they were now leaving Jerusalem, walking back home. That same day, that Easter Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. They don't get thrown off by this. People go, well, why would he keep them from recognizing him? Have you ever watched Undercover Boss? I mean, Secret Chopper? And it's like, well, yeah, but that's done because the boss wants to know what's really going on. Jesus already knows. He doesn't need this. Well, he's not going undercover for him. He knows what's going on. He went undercover for them so that when they were explaining to him what was going on, they would make the discovery and go, oh, just like the disciples had done when they went in the tomb and went, oh, just like he's trying to do with you and me every day. And maybe it's happening for you today where you go, oh, I don't need to pretend. I don't need to figure it all out. I just need to come to Jesus. If you understand that, then you understand what's happening as they walk along. So as he was walking with them, he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Listen to this. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We had hoped, but you know, can't be. Because he died. And this all happened three days ago. And then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb earlier this morning. And they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. And they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. And some of our men ran out to see. And John was faster than Peter, too. And, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. And some of our men ran out to see. And sure enough... His body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe. 
that all the prof- what all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, basically through the whole Old Testament, showing them from the scriptures the things that concerned himself. Suddenly their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and at that moment he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Ah, I get it. I mean, Jesus told him, I mean, how thick are you guys? Why are you not believing this? I mean, he had told them, just like they'd been following him, they'd heard him. He said, you don't understand this? This is what the prophets wrote about. If you're wondering what kind of things he might've shown them, I don't know exactly, but listen to part of Isaiah 53. These are a few verses. Describing the Messiah, this was written 700 years before the crucifixion happened. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised. We didn't care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And Jesus goes, don't you understand that was talking about the Messiah? Don't you understand those were verses written about Jesus? But they didn't understand until that minute. Because when life became hard, they forgot all about the promises of God. So here's a life application for us on this Easter Sunday. Our hope is based on the truth of God's promises, not our feelings or understanding. And aren't you glad about that? Because our feelings and understandings go like this. One day we're up and one day we're down and business is good and business is bad and children are born and friends die and on and on. We go through all these things in life And we go, oh, God is good. Oh, God is bad. Oh, God is good. Oh, God is bad. And God's promises tell us, no, God is good all the time. We just have to trust him when circumstances turn on us. Let me remind us of a couple of promises that apply to you and me. All those things I read you were clearly written about the Messiah. They should have known it. 700 years earlier, here are some promises that were written a couple of thousand years ago that, that apply to you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. And if you think you're not good enough to come to Jesus, you've done too much, you've sinned too badly, you're wrong. Whoever we are, no matter what we've done, we can come to Jesus. That's a promise. And it doesn't depend on my feelings or yours. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's a promise for you and me. I don't know what you've been through this last year. You don't know what I've been through this last year. But I do know a promise that applies to both of us. We can come to Jesus and he'll give us rest for our souls. David said, he leads me beside still waters 
and green pastures. He walks me through the valley of the shadow of death and he restores my soul. Here's another promise. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 1. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power that conquered the grave is available to you and me. When we come to Christ, not only does he forgive us of our sins, he place, God places the Holy Spirit inside of us and he changes us from the inside out. He gives us the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Thomas, one of the disciples, didn't believe when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples because he wasn't there. A week later, Jesus appeared to Thomas and he said, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. When Peter ran to the tomb and he saw the wrappings there and Jesus wasn't in them, he stopped doubting and started to believe. The women went to the tomb expecting to anoint a dead body. They got to the tomb and the body wasn't there. And they ran back excited with the good news. They believed. Maybe this year, maybe this year we'll believe. Some of us for the first time, we're going, oh God, I believe. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I surrender my life to you. I get it now. I know what happened. Some of us, we've run away from God because life got hard and painful and we turned our back on him and he's calling us to back home and go, come back. Come back. I'll give you rest for your souls. You don't have to figure it all out. And I've got blessings for you that you're not going to believe. Either way, I'd like for us to pray this Sunday morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Easter. We thank you that the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty, Lord, we know that you are who you say you are. Because the tomb is empty, Lord, we know that you are stronger than death. Because the tomb is empty, Lord, we know that the offering you made for our sin was accepted. Because the tomb is empty, Lord, we know that you not only have the power to conquer sin and death, you have the power to help us with every problem we will ever have. And so, Lord Jesus, we come before you on this Easter Sunday morning and we say, Lord, help us believe. Open our eyes so we trust you and we trust the promises of your word. Forgive us, Lord, when we put all our hope in our circumstances and we trust our emotions more than we trust your word. If you're here today and you finally understand that Jesus died on the cross for you and you're ready to give your heart to him today, then pray with me right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, I understand that you died on the cross in my place. I'm a sinner, Lord. I've made every mistake I could possibly make. I've run my life into the ground. I want your forgiveness. I want a new start. I need your spirit in me, Lord. I can't do this without you. I give my life to you today. Or maybe you're here today and you went through a crushing defeat, a bitter sorrow years ago, 
And God's calling you back home now saying, don't give up on me. I have plans for you. And you realize that today. Pray with me now. God, you know the hurt that I've been through. You know the sorrow that I've had in my life. And God, it's been crushing to me. And foolishly, Lord, I gave up on you. And I said, oh God, you can't do anything good for me ever again. And now I'm beginning to understand that you have plans that far exceed mine. And you can bring good out of circumstances that I would never ever think anything good could come from. Forgive me for my unbelief, Lord. Forgive me for my doubts. God, fill me with your spirit. Help me trust in you. Oh, Lord, I thank you for Easter. I thank you that Jesus is everything he said he was. God, I thank you that you've heard our prayers now because we pray them in the name of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.